Well, today as we return to our study of the life of Jesus, and in particular today, uh, to the trial that he endures before the Roman governor who is Pontius Pilate, Jesus is going to talk to us, interestingly enough, about truth. And I say that's kind of interesting because the reality is that the people who bring him to Pilate, the Jewish religious leaders who only the previous evening had showed up at Pilate's door, who only that prior evening had filed legal briefs and made legal arguments and made their case for why it is that Pilate should send a whole cohort of soldiers, two to six hundred soldiers, along with them under their command to go arrest this Jesus, who have taken this Jesus and falsely charged him, falsely tried him, falsely convicted him. All of it's false, and who now will bring him back, as we'll see, Friday morning, the very next morning, to Pilate. Jesus is going to talk to us about truth in a context when these guys don't value truth. And Pilate doesn't value truth. Truth in this trial is manipulated. Truth in this trial is manufactured, and it's used, it's denied, it's rejected, It's really kind of of no consequence whatsoever to anybody other than Christ, but to Him, it's of major import. Jesus cares very passionately about the truth. And so in this context, He's going to talk to us about truth, and here's what He's going to say. He's going to say that what you do with God's Word or with God's truth, and I want to pause and connect those two ideas because I don't want you thinking that those are two different things necessarily. I mean, as you look through John's gospel, the Word of God and the truth of God come together in the person of Jesus Christ, do they not? I mean, right out of the gate, chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and then what happened? The Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory is of the only begotten from the Father, and He was full of grace and what else? Truth. John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth. Jesus is the living Word of God. He's the living truth of God. But so then also is the Bible. If you think back just a couple of weeks, on that same night that He's arrested, on that same night that He's betrayed, having taught His disciples and given them sort of their last volume of teaching, He prays for His disciples, but not just them, but He prays for us. And in part, here's what He says. He says, Father, take these people that You come to by Your Spirit, that You make alive, that You call out of the world through faith in Me, that You make clean though they are filthy, that You make whole though they are broken. This people and sanctify them. It means set them apart. For what? For His mission. See, the very next verse, He says, Father, just as You sent me into the world, so I am sending them into the world. We are to be a sent people, and it's not on my mission or Yours that we're sent on. Praise God, it's His. But Jesus says, I want you to take these people. I want you to sanctify them. I want you to set them apart for my mission. And here's how to do it, Lord, in the truth. And then He says, in Your Word is truth. So Jesus is going to talk to us about truth in a context in which truth is not valued by anyone other than Him, but it is passionately valued by Him. And He's going to say that what you and I do with God's Word or with God's truth, the truth that is Christ and the truth that is His Bible, His Word, His written Word that comes to us and says, listen, here is your Jesus. It calls us to faith in Him and then it teaches us how to love Him and serve Him and worship Him by giving our lives to Him. Portion by portion, bit by bit. And living for Him. As by His Spirit we go forth and obey it, what you do, what I do, with God's Word, with God's truth matters. And here's the punchline more than anything else. 
It matters more than anything else. And just like we're going to see this in the lives of these guys, there are other things competing with the value of the truth in their lives. There are other things competing with the value of truth in my life and in your life. And what we're going to do today, and it's a little uncomfortable, and it feels kind of awkward, and you don't want to do it. It's kind of something that you resist because you know the Jewish religious leaders who hand Jesus over are really bad guys, and then Pilate, not much better, is we're going to kind of take up the mirror that John is handing us that is them and say, okay, is there any resemblance as I look into it? We pick up our study today in John chapter 18, beginning of verse 28, where John says this, he says, then, meaning after Jesus has been arrested, after Jesus has been falsely accused and charged and tried and convicted by the religious leaders who in dispensing with the truth that is Jesus and dispensing with the word of God that everywhere taught them and teaches us to have faith in Jesus, prove that they care less about the truth who is Jesus or about God's word for that matter, then they do what? What they fear losing. And what is that exactly? Well, they fear losing their prestige. They fear losing their power. They fear losing their position amongst the people. They fear losing their money. They fear, you see how that deal works. And what I want you to do as we move through this and you see these things that they fear losing is to start asking yourself, man, you know, I mean, if I really take Jesus and I put him here and I really take his word like in every area of my life and I put it here and by the power of the Spirit of God as a broken person who, yes, will stumble, but who can get up again by the power of God and continue on, die to myself that I might live to him, all right, what is it that I fear losing? Because whatever that is, that's what's above him, isn't it? And we see that in their lives, and I see that in my life. (laughs) And perhaps you'll see it in yours as well. John says, then, meaning after, the Jewish religious leaders falsely arrest, charge, try, convict Jesus in their own court. They then led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas where they had held their trial. It's their highest court to the governor's headquarters. Now, when he's talking here about the governor's headquarters, he's not talking about the official headquarters of the governor where the governor lived, that is Pontius Pilate, year-round. That was in Caesarea. That's 60 miles away as the crow flies. That's about a five-day's walk because you don't get to go as the crow flies. But that's where he lived year-round. Caesarea was a beautiful port city, and you can go there today. And in fact, if you go to Israel with us, you will go there today. It's the first stop on day one of the tour, and you get to stand in the Roman amphitheater, and you get to go and see the ruins of where Herod's palace was, where Pilate in his day lived, where all the governors that were of Judea lived from Rome. You'll see where they you know, raced the chariots and all the storehouses and possibly where Paul was held in prison. And all of these things occur in Caesarea. Pilate stayed in Caesarea year-round. It's where he much preferred to be, but three times a year, just like all the Jewish people in Israel, for the most part, he came up to Jerusalem. Why? Because there were feast times. And so he would come up for the feasts, like this one, the Passover, to help keep the peace. So this is all kind of convenient for the Jewish religious leaders who are looking to kill Jesus because the Passover has drawn Jesus into their web, and the Passover, in a sense, has drawn Pilate into their web. But why do they need Pilate to kill Jesus? Because for all of the self-governance that the Jewish people were allowed by the Roman Empire, they were not given the ability to put people to death. And that, and nothing less, as we'll see, 
is the goal. So they show up at Pilate's headquarters, which in all likelihood was the Antonia Fortress. It's located on the northwest corner of the temple complex, connected to the outer courts by stairs. Could not have been more convenient for them. And John says that they show up, and it was early morning, and they themselves, the religious leaders of the Jewish people, did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. The deal here is that one of their laws said that if you entered the home of a Gentile, Pilate being a Gentile, this fortress being his local residence, his home, you would become ceremonially unclean. And these are the guys who are planning to lead in the Passover festivities this very night. So they can't go in. Pilate comes out. He says in the second part of verse 28, so Pilate went outside to them. And Pilate, too, is an interesting character. He was appointed to be the Roman governor of Judea by the emperor Tiberius about four to seven years, depending upon how this whole thing dates out, prior to this trial, prior to this encounter with the Lord. And he was appointed as a result of a mutual friend of the emperor. So again, even back then, it wasn't kind of what you know, it's who you know, right? This guy's name was Sejanus, and so because of his relationship with Tiberius and his relationship with Pilate, Pilate got the job, and Pilate's job, at least conceptually, was simple. It was keep the peace, collect the taxes. Keep the peace, collect the taxes. And at least in terms of keeping the peace, he had not done a good job. One of the first things he did, out of ignorance, out of insensitivity, out of arrogance, maybe out of all three... When he became the Roman governor of Judea, he took pictures, banners of the Roman emperor, and he put them all over the city of Jerusalem. Now, what's the problem with that? Well, the problem with that is that the Roman emperor was worshipped as a god, so it was as though he littered their holy city with idols. And quite predictably, they did not like that. So they, a whole host of them, marched five or so days all the way to Caesarea, because that's where he lived year-round, and they began to protest day after day after day after day. On the fifth day, Pilate scattered his troops amongst this protesting crowd, and on a given signal, they all drew their swords, but the idea was they wanted to scare them away. And instead of running, the Jewish people literally bared their necks for Pilate's soldiers and said, chop our heads off, we will not back down on this. So guess who backed down and was none too happy about it? His job was keep the peace, guys, not slaughter the people. So he had to eat his words in so so many ways, I guess, and he removed all of these different things from the city of Jerusalem. Not long after that, he stole from the temple treasury to build an aqueduct in Judea. How would you feel about that? Not long after that, he decorated his local palace there in Jerusalem with these shields, like what a soldier would carry. But on the shields was the emperor's name. Again, the emperor's worshipped as a god. Again, this is idolatry. And this time, the Jewish people not only protested, but they protested to the emperor himself, who was furious with Pilate, commanded him to take all the shields down. And was thinking, you know, this guy's kind of thick. I mean, he just doesn't seem to get it. And by the way, by the time that they show up now with Jesus, again in an uproar, Pilate's friend Sejanus, his mutual buddy with the emperor, had been executed by the emperor. So I think to say that Pilate is on the political hot seat is to make a massive, massive understatement. But then again, I would remind you that 
What you and I do with God's word, with God's truth, well, it matters more than anything else. So what will he do? The religious leaders show up. They show up with Jesus. They can't go in. Verse 29, it says, so Pilate then went out to them. And then listen to what he says. It's so offensive to these guys. He says, what accusation do you bring against this man? Now, that is legal language in that day. He's saying, I am officially opening a trial. And that is the last thing that they expected because, again, only the previous evening, they had come to see him. They had filed their legal briefs. They had made their arguments. They had said, we need two to 600 soldiers. Surely they gave him some idea of what the charges are. He understood the previous night they were going to arrest this guy, they were going to take this guy, and their own Sanhedrin, their their Supreme Court, if you will, was going to try this guy. And clearly now when they show up with this guy, it's clear that they've convicted him, that they have found him guilty. So they don't show up, you know, expecting him to now conduct his own trial. They show up expecting him to go, oh, wow, okay, rubber stamp. Now we'll execute him. But he doesn't like these guys, and they don't like him, and he's suspicious about the way they've handled this whole deal. He's pretty well convinced that they're not, you know, actually trying to get Jesus killed because Jesus has done something worthy of getting killed for, but rather out of envy, rather out of spite. This is an opportunity for him to kind of stick it to these guys. And as the trial progresses, he starts to become suspicious that maybe there's something unique about this Jesus too, by the way, which sort of freaks him out. So he says to them, what accusation do you bring against this man, thus opening his own trial? And they're none too happy about it. And so they answer him very disrespectfully. If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Duh, what's your problem? Thought we had this all worked out. And so Pilate, who feels their disrespect and resents it, says to them, well, then fine. Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law, knowing that they had already done that. And B, the only reason they were there is so that he could kill Jesus for them. He's forcing them to grovel a little bit. He's making them to confess that they need him at the very least and that they're under him in some sense. And it works because it says that the Jews no doubt resentfully said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. So he has outed them. But then look what John says. He says, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Under Jewish law, if they were going to execute you, which again, they didn't have the power to do, but if they were, they would have stoned you. That was the method. Under Roman law, unless you were a Roman, this was considered beneath the Roman. Even if you did something worthy of execution and you were a Roman, crucifixion was so bad, they wouldn't subject you to it. But if you were not a Roman, like Jesus, it was crucifixion. And the Lord had already told these guys, hey, I'm going to be crucified. I will die on a tree. After three days, I'll be raised from the dead. And they were just like, what? They still don't get that even yet. But if what the Jewish religious leaders are doing with Jesus here is really fulfilling the word that Jesus has spoken, if what Pilate is going to do here really fulfills the word that Jesus has spoken, then let me ask you, who's really in charge here? It's the one who looks the weakest. 
It's the one who is submitting to the Father's will. It's the one who values nothing above truth. It's pretty powerful. And so then John tells us that Pilate entered his headquarters again, and he called for Jesus to come inside with him so that he could question him away from these guys, okay? He wants to have a little private time with the Lord. And he said to him, once he gets him inside of the house, while they're all out there rioting, he says, are you the king of the Jews? Now, where did that come from, if not from the previous night? So he knows what they're going to claim about him. And why is that even an issue? Okay, yeah, you're the king of the Jews. Big deal. Well, it was a big deal. If there was one thing that Tiberius, with whom Pilate was already kind of, you know, in a tenuous relationship with at this point, would not tolerate it was a rival king, a vassal king, one who admits that the emperor is the emperor and serves and lives for the emperor, fine, but not a rival king, one who comes with his own kingdom. Those guys were executed over and over and over and over and over again and on a cross. And so Pilate, who's more concerned with his pride, with his ego, with his ability to save face, with his job, and with his life, those are valuable things. Then he is with the truth. Simply wants to know if this is a valid claim or not so that he can decide whether or not he can stick it to his political enemies because he wants to do that. He fears losing that more than he values the truth. Collect these things up. Prestige, power, position, money, pride, ego, saving face, job, life. What you do with God's word or truth matters more than those things, more than anything. And so Pilate entered his headquarters again, and he called Jesus to come inside. And then outside of the presence of the Jewish religious leaders, he said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Because if that's what you're claiming, you know, then we both have a problem here. And Jesus answered to him, and he said, do you say that of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? In other words, is the Spirit of God testifying to your spirit that I am, in fact, not just a king, but the king? Or are you just saying that because of last night, and I know they were here, and they got the soldiers and kind of tipped you off as to what it is that they're going to claim, or maybe that's just the thing that you're most concerned that they're going to bring up, because that's going to stick you and paint you into a corner, and you're not going to be able to stick it to these guys. Which is it? And so Pilate answered very kind of angrily, it sounds to me, am I a Jew? You know, he's like despising him. Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me, so I'm not concerned about your kingship or about your kingdom. I don't care about truth. I care about all this other stuff. And so Jesus then knows how to reply. Pilate says, what have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom. Now hang on, because if you have a kingdom, then you are a king, right? So he's admitting to being a king as Pilate picks up on, but he says, my kingdom is not of this world, and so therefore it's no threat to Caesar. And here's the proof. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world, and so it's not advanced by the sword, and it's not even advanced by the preservation of the very life of Jesus. In fact, just the opposite. How is the kingdom of God advanced? 
It's advanced by the power of the Spirit of God in accordance with the Word of God through the laying down of the life of the one who himself is God, which is Jesus, but not just Jesus. See, his servants are called to fight, just not with the sword, guys. And his servants are called to lay their lives down in battle in a variety of ways. But not in a battle that they fight with the weapons of this world. And so then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. I mean, if you have a kingdom. (laughs) And Jesus answered, and it sounds awkward in the way that it's translated, and it is kind of an awkward statement. He says, you say that I am a king. What that means is, what he's really saying is, you are right in saying that I am a king. But, but here's my mission, just so Caesar, Caesar can relax and so can you. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. So what is that? To bear witness to the truth. And then listen to what he says next, because it's at the core of what we're talking about today. He says, everyone who is of the truth, everyone who authentically belongs to me through faith, he says, what? Listens to my voice. Listens to my voice. And that doesn't mean, okay, I hear the voice of Jesus and I understand it intellectually and I take it under advisement. And I think it's kind of nice. It means I hear the voice of Jesus as the voice of my king. I am his servant, the subject of his kingdom, which is not of this world, that is advanced by the Spirit and the Word as I lay my life down after the pattern of my Lord and take it up again after his pattern, ultimately in glory. I listen to his voice and I obey it in faith. And yeah, sometimes I blow it. (laughs) In fact, a lot, actually. And I praise God then for the gospel when I can go back and, you know, the gospel is not just for once. Okay, I'm saved. Check that off. The gospel is a life of repentance in which we're dying more and more unto sin and we're taking up more and more of the word of God and living more and more unto righteousness. Jesus has not set us free from our sin, guys, so that we can then run off and live like these people. He says, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. It recalls John 10, where he says, I'm the good shepherd, and my sheep, they know my voice. What you do with God's word or with God's truth matters, and it matters more than anything else. And I just started thinking about that from the perspective of these guys, for starters. And I started thinking, you know, I mean, like, if you could call these guys forth from the grave, you know, the the religious leaders at this point, you know, kind of got them up here on stage, just one or two as a representative small stage, and it would be weird. But if you could give them microphones... And you could say to them, okay, how do you feel about the value judgments that you made relative to Jesus, where you took power and prestige and position and money and, you know, I mean, whatever else it was that they were afraid of losing more than they cared about the truth of his Christ or the truth of God's word, which is everywhere pointing them to him. What do you think they'd say today? Because they've had a little time to think. What about Pilate? Okay, so then I thought, what about me? What about you now? Granted, We know Christ. We, unlike them, see Him as the Son of God, as the Lamb of God, come to take away the sin of the world, including our sin, 
as we lay hold of it and Him by faith. But if you just fast forward to the end of your life, what do you think you're going to think? Like, I mean, are you going to get to the end of your life and think, you know what, I am so glad that I didn't spend a lot of time really getting to know the Lord through things like personal worship and prayer and the study of God's Word, you know, really giving Him the opportunity to, to talk to me, to, to learn His voice, that I might follow Him, to, to know the release and joy of letting Him be the leader of my life and, and you know, the one on whose shoulders everything has to fall and, and submitting to Him and, and knowing His joy and peace. I, I'm really glad I didn't spend too much time doing that. Or do you think maybe you'll get to the end and go, man, I wish I had starts to answer itself, doesn't it? I mean, it suggests at least an answer. What about your resources? Do you think you're going to get to the end of your life and go, I'm so glad that I didn't tithe, and I'm so glad that I wasn't generous the way the Lord calls me to do. I'm so glad that instead I had this idol. Collect it all up. For what? Or do you think, man, I really wish I did? I remember sitting in a seminary class with one of my professors, and he was um, along in years at that point. It's probably one of his last years teaching. This is a while ago. And he was talking about that. He's talking about his stuff. And, you know, I mean, he's a seminary professor, guys. He doesn't have a lot of stuff. So he's a pretty humble guy in terms of means. And um, it's like he starts tearing up and saying things like, I wonder if... You know, the day is coming when I'm going to look at my couch, and I'm thinking, look, you need a couch, you know, and I'm, I'm sure that it's not a real nice couch, okay? But is the day going to come where I'm going to look back on my life and say, how much did that couch cost? What could I have done with that? How much did, what could I have done with that? How much, if you start playing that game, it hurts, just know that. And I'm not telling you to sell your couch. Start at the end and look backwards and ask yourself, when I get to the end, will I be thankful for this or will it be I wish I had? What about comfort? You know, it's uncomfortable, for example, to follow Jesus openly. It's just, frankly, awkward at times. I mean, I get to work at a church, so it's cool. But, I mean, I remember when I was, you know, a lawyer and I was making a transition to becoming a pastor, okay? And I had, let's say, a hundred cases with a hundred different lawyers in town. And individually, I had to tell every single one of them what I was now going to do. It was a real conversation killer. Seriously, man. Some of it was over the phone, and I thanked God for that. But some of it was like at the courthouse, or like one who knew would come to me with another lawyer and go, hey, man, tell them what you're doing. Like... <laughs> Because these guys were my friends, a lot of them, you know. I mean, I got to know them over the years. It's awkward. It's awkward to tell people about Jesus, isn't it? But what mission are you set apart to? Your comfort? Are you going to get to the end of your life and go, man, I am so, whoo, I'm so glad I avoided all that awkwardness. Are you going to get to the end of your life and go, good grief, I wish I had just sucked it up and endured it. Do you think you'll get to the end and be glad that you pursued pleasure 
in the place of purity and valued one above the other? Or do you think you'll think, man, you know, then there was that time and then there's this issue and I wish I would have and purity instead and you just keep going, but I think you get the idea. What you do with God's Word, what you do with His truth matters, and you know what? It matters more than anything else. Verse 37, Jesus says, For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth, everyone who is on the side of truth. Not most people who are on the side of truth. Not all, but yeah, just a few. Every one who is on the side of truth, or who is of the truth, listens to my voice. And here's Pilate's response. Probably cynically, he says, what is truth? And now what I want to do is just read you, for the most part, sort of the rest of the story that leads up to the point where Pilate takes the Lord and turns the truth over to be crucified, which is a huge illustration of how much he cares about the truth and of how much he cares about you. And I want you to kind of imagine it as it plays out. It says, after Pilate had said this, he went back in outside to the Jewish people. So he's going inside, outside, inside. He goes back outside, leaving Jesus behind. And he told them, and count these now, I find no guilt in him. There's the first one. But then instead of simply releasing this man that he finds guiltless, he can't. He's politically handcuffed. He's weak. He tries to find a way to get them to agree to the release of Jesus just in case that comes around to bite him, well, you know where. And so he says, plan A, you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. Thought you guys might forget about that, but I'm going to bring that up now. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Can you hear the mockery in his voice? intentionally mocking the Lord. And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas, John says, was a robber. So they choose a criminal over Jesus. So that plan doesn't work. So then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. That sounds nice. Not really, but sounds nicer than it is. And him tied to a pole, stripped naked, and had a handful of his soldiers take whips with many tails and sharp objects in them, glass, nails, and literally whip him over and over again with his hands up, and then having stuck all of that in him, yank it off until they would literally stop because they're tired of doing it. He took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns for this king. And they put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple in a royal-looking robe, which probably stuck to his back. And they came up to him, mocking him and saying better than they knew, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him with their hands. 
Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you. Do you understand what his plan is here? His plan is to so grind Jesus into the dust, to so humiliate Jesus, to so belittle Jesus, to beat him literally, physically beyond recognition, to present him as so shredded and so weak and so humiliated that it would evoke the pity even of these people, and no one could possibly in their right mind argue that this man is a threat to anyone. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I, second time, find no guilt in him. And so Jesus is paraded out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, better than he knew, Behold the man, the God-man. The one who's actually in charge. The one who's even redeeming their wickedness in some sense and that he's putting it to his own use. He's receiving it and taking it unto himself in the place of those over whom he sits as king. That he might with the truth of his gospel that he values more than his person, more than his comfort, more than the riches of heaven which he left behind to come into the world as the God-man. Set us free not to live like these people, but to live like Him. Well, plan B doesn't work. It says when the chief priests and the officers saw Him, they saw Him, and they're going to reject what they see even. They cried out, there's a passion, crucify Him, and crucify Him. And seeing that that plan too had failed, Pilate again said to them, well, take Him yourselves and crucify Him for, third time, I find no guilt in Him. And the Jews answered Him, we have a law. And according to that law, He ought to die. And now there's a new ground for this because He has made Himself the Son of God. And then John says that Pilate, who Matthew has already told us, has a wife that's been like freaking out about Jesus because she's been having these visions and dreams in which she says, according to her word, she's been and tormented about this man and has sent him a note while he's going through all of this saying, hey, um, watch out for this guy, you know, treat him right is the idea. It says when Pilate heard that statement, he was even more afraid. And he entered his headquarters again, and he said to Jesus, he separated them, where are you from? But Jesus gave no answer. And so Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Now Jesus speaks. And what does he tell him? Well, he tells him the truth. He says, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Now, who's that? Probably the high priest, maybe Judas. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. And from then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jewish religious establishment who knew just how politically vulnerable he was went for the jugular. They say, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. And then believe me, that's the one thing he wanted to be. 
Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And so when Pilate heard these words, he knew it was game over. That was it. Because he knew that just like they had previously gone to Caesar about the shields and that, you know, and had won, now they're going to go again about a at least alleged rival king that their highest court all agreed should die. And Pilate wouldn't do it, causing an uproar instead. And so he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. And now it was the day of the preparation of the Passover, and it was about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold, your king. And they cried out and said, You know, there's some things that we value more than him. That he stands, at least as we see it, as a threat to So away with him, away with him, they chant, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered and said, we have no king but Caesar. So Pilate delivered the living word of God and the personification of all truth and the one of whom the whole scripture points him and me and you too over to them to be crucified, which, of course, Jesus willingly submitted to because that's how much he cares about the truth and that's how much he cares about you. What we do with God's Word, with God's truth matters, and it matters more than anything else. And God gives to us in grace the examples of folks who don't get that. Even to His people, He gives to us those examples in grace because He's calling us to look at them and to be different. What are you placing above the truth of God? What do you look at and go, you know, if I really put him here and I follow his word, I fear that I'm going to lose. And do you really think you're going to get to the end of it all and go, oh man, I regret that decision. That was terrible. That was a bad idea. Or thankful that you did. Let's pray.